how to start? Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're modern. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome back to the show. In episode 498, I sat down with Amy Sherman Palladino and her husband, Daniel Palladino, the creators, showrunners, and EPs of Gilmore Girls and The Marvelous Miss Maisel. We talked about how they got their started in their careers, what it means to write these quick wit characters such as Lorelai Gilmore and, of course, Midge on Miss Maisel, world building on the backlot for the Gilmore Girls, full story arcs. They had 154 episodes to write Gilmore Girls, but only 43 for Miss Maisel. Where this original idea came from, what it was like to cast Rachel Brosnahan in the role, and of course how they chose to end the series, and some of their best advice for emerging writers today. You can also find this interview on the Creative Screenwriting website. Here's my conversation with Amy and Daniel. Uh, well, I was ill-equipped to do anything else, um, so I, I, I was sort of survival of the fittest, maybe. Um, my father was a comic, my mother was a dancer, so it was basically for me, pick something in show business because that's all you got. Dan has a very different story. No, I, I mean, you know, ne neither, we both, I think, infuriate aspiring screenwriters because we're not the people who wrote a ton of like spec things sort of and fell into it dreamed about it like because amy, amy actually was was like being a dancer i was being a musician and then i got a job because typing was such a rare commodity back in the late 80s i got a job working on a tv show as a writer's assistant and all i was doing was typing scripts because everybody wrote their scripts for this tv show yes, back in the old days where you actually in, picked up a pen in longhand on, yellow pad yeah in longhand on yellow pads and i spent all day typing 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 and i just remember at one point many months into the process thinking i think i could do this like i <laughs> i saw what they were doing i kind of felt like and then i think the ten thousand hours of not practicing but of watching tv before that as a child uh just sort of kind of i had a natural i think i had a bit of a natural flair for it based on all the time i wasted in my youth oh dear so you're writing on shows like roseanne when did like gilmore girls come about when did that idea kind of come about let's see i was off roseanne i was on roseanne for four years and then kind of mucking mucking around for a couple three years after that and it it really came about because uh suzanne daniel who was running uh the wb at the time she wanted a comedic hour long and it was one of those things where I didn't know what an hour long meant except for more pages. And my scripts were always long anyhow. So I figured that seems like it could work. So I, I just walked in basically and pitched a bunch of ideas. I had another idea that I really, really like worked out the pitch and I had optioned an article and I was very enthusiastic about it. And then halfway through, I realized everybody in the room was sort of looking at their watches and thinking about what they were going to order for lunch. And, and at the last minute, they're like, do you have anything else? And I'm like, oh, it's just this idea about a mother daughter 
and they're more like friends than mother daughter. And they went, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll buy that. And that was, that was basically how it happened it, with, with very little uh, thought put into it. Yeah, well, or, or Amy had actually written two or three pilots that didn't go based on mother daughter relationships that were a little different from Gilmore girls. Mm-hmm. And I just remember when you mother. picked uh, mother daughter. Yeah. There one was a mother son, yeah. but they were like mother daughter. And, um, and I just remember when you pitched this, it sounded really great. And I said, but you know what? This this should be the last mother child. <laughs> yes, you've got to move pilot on. Pilot that you write. And it it was yeah. ultimately. Tell me a little bit about you mentioned your your screenplays are a bit longer. Is it because of the banter? Because I would compare some of the writing to like Aaron Sorkin or something like it's better than real life. Is it is it that it's required to be a little quicker, especially with Gilmore and Miss Maisel? That's that's kind of our internal rhythm. I think we we naturally like, you know, if, if you really pay attention to how people talk in real life, they talk a lot faster than they tend to talk on television. Mm-hmm. Um, where 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 somebody orders a cup of coffee and and ten people look at them before they say uh, cream sugar, and uh, we we tend to have sort of a high, uh, higher higher uh, our, our life is ticking. We got to go a little faster, and when you have that sort of pace, um, it does shrink up the the time. And while scripts might look like they're they're very large and and they actually are scripts it took a long time for us to realize how long our scripts needed to be to actually fill the time that we need to feel. Yeah. I mean, our, our scripts generally on Maisel were like in the low eighties and the timings came out to about 50 minutes or so. And on another, on, on any other show, an 80 page script would be probably 110 minutes of material just because of pace. So yeah, our scripts are, our scripts are a little longer because of that. But yeah, Amy and I do feel like, there, there's like a there's a <laughs> there's a pace <laughs> of dialogue on TV that really is reflective of TV and not so reflective of real like life. Movies too, like yeah. I, I just think that like in in general, that's why like I, I would say our our energy is a little bit more like theater because in in theater people tend to talk a little faster, yeah. you know. Um, and I think it's fine to just I mean get, that's get kind to of, your point and move on with your and life. that's kind of what Aaron's. Also yeah. came out of the love of musical theater of and theater and all that stuff. So it's it's just sort of what we what we bent towards. Does this come from actually writing together? Like, how do you guys go about writing screenplays? Do you write in a room? Is it more conversation? What are some of the logistics of the process? We we, we don't actually write together. We yeah. If it's if it's we we've written we've written screen screenplays together. We've written a lot of TV together, but basically we come up with the stories together. If either with a group of writers in the room with us to sort of uh, referee and keep us from at each other's throats, or just alone, like at our at a at our house and just trying to figure something out, and then from that process we'll have like ideas for some dialogue and things like that. But then when we go to actually sit down and write and type the script we go to our separate corners we dip we put dibs on certain scenes we divide them up and then we write separately yeah um that's why we're still married yeah i mean she likes to write with the tv on i write i either, need noise, noise, noise either with a little music in the background or i write in public because that helps me kind of focus on the on the computer and uh and then we 
and then we trade pages and we edit and we and we uh and we come to come to agreement around the time sorry around the time of gilmore girls is this when you started to branch out to be producers and eps and everything else or like how did that kind of change in addition to the writing no we had both we had both been in positions where we were running shows like when gilmore girls first went on i was running the second season of family guy um so we had both we had both done that a little bit we were both sort of at the executive producer level pilots and yeah we 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 weren't we weren't super young and and newbies when amy did did gilmore girl so and i i think the experience helped it was it was definitely our first single camera like yeah. I mean, Family Guy is technically single camera, but it's animated. But it was the first time either one of us had professionally produced single camera. And it really, I think it came, I think it came very naturally. It really, it really fit the rhythms with how we both sort of naturally wrote better than what sitcom had become. Sitcom had changed a lot since I started and since Amy started. It used to be more about things and not just about jokes and act breaks and stuff like that. And we were, tiring rapidly of the sitcom world mm-hmm. for that reason and getting a single camera in that world where you could discuss tone with people and they won't look at you like you're crazy um you can just a rehearsal na- yeah <laughs> you know, it was just sort of a natural but it was a natural evolution for us did some of that you know the business part of the business did that lead to like a lot of the characters on these shows are very entrepreneurial they start their own business or run a small business some of that was like in a small town that just kind of naturally happens. But do you guys think about that? Or is it just kind of a byproduct of, of how you think about things? Yeah. I mean, it, it, I think it just, it happens organically from, from however the character is that you've, you know, set them up. I mean, Lorelai was, was somebody who came from a very successful family and then chose to completely branch out on her own. She had no education. She had, you know, she didn't go to college. She, but she was incredibly bright and a real self-starter. And a, and a, and when you create a character like that, that character is not just sitting around, you know, going from day to day. That that character is going to have dreams and a plan, and that character is going to be thinking beyond what what her her life is in this moment. Um, and I think that just having creating that sort of character sort of demands like. Well, what is her dream? What does she want to do? What does she think she can pull off? What does she, you know, want to try? And it 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 evolved from there. It, it just you know it's character first, and then and then you kind of branch out from there. Did anything surprise you about like doing that many episodes of that show? Like I'm thinking of kind of about the world building and a lot of the side characters and everything that kind of got to happen from having that much you know um, time to play with. Yeah, I mean it, it. It was a fun. It, it was a fun surprise for us, and I think um, it's one of the reasons why the show is still watched. That we were able to expand that world, and especially Stars Hollow. Um, we were we were literally continuing to build the Warner Brothers backlot out and saying, "Hey, let's take this fake front yeah, and turn it, turn, turn it into a music store, and let's take this and turn it into a flower shop and." And yeah, and we were, we slowly started building characters out from the very, very beginning and, uh, and then just kept expanding because the world, 
I mean, that world was really important. And and one of the things that people talked to us most about that show, uh, except for like Dean, the the guys and all that stuff, and just the mother-daughter relationship that that a lot of mothers and daughters that we've run into have re- really, really connected to, is that town and that people wanted to live in that town and felt felt comfortable watching the show because the town was so comforting. So it was, we sort of built out a family of freaks for Lorelai and Rory in that town. And it's become sort of a fantasy for people who long for a simpler world than ours, I think. And we got, we got actually weirdly lucky in a way that we didn't plan initially because, you know, the, the business model back then was very much you shoot your pilot and then the show was shipped off somewhere in Canada. And then your writer's room was in LA and that concept was so foreign to me. The idea that they would separate me from my show just seemed insane. And I remember uh, talking to Gavin Palone, who was producing the show with, with me at the time, and, and saying, we, we, we have to figure out a way to keep the show here in L.A., or they've got to send me to Canada. Like, we, we, we can't be a part. It doesn't work like that. So... I, we we at the time the back lot was not really being used that much. It was in kind of disrepair. They shot commercials and stuff on it, but sort of the heyday of like shooting on that back lot had not happened. And and we walked one of the one of the business guys out there, like not even like the creative team. We walked the business guy out there because that's who we had to convince at the time. And we walked him around. And we said like, "What if we shoot it here? It's right here, and Lorelai's house could be there, and that's the school, and that's the." That's Miss Patty's, and over the and and we we got them sort of excited about the fact that everything could be shot kind of in their backyard, um, and we agreed to go from thirty five to super sixteen film, and that saved some money, and we just basically talked them into letting us shoot uh, Gilmore on the back lot, and if we hadn't have done that, we would have been shooting in. A town we wouldn't have been able to go outside that much you know it, the, the separation between church and state would have been made, made the evolution of what the show became impossible it would have been a completely different show we wouldn't have been able to build a world the way we got to build a world by sort of taking over this this backlot so it was it was quite fortunate in a way that we we were just in the moment, I was just in a panic of like, they're going to split me up from the show. I wasn't even thinking about the other benefits that come with this backlot, which was being able to actually truly build a world where people can go and sort of be in there, be outside all the time. We had no money to go on location. That was our location. Was there any hesitation with the show about like the references? Because I know like at one point, it's kind of more commonplace now to reference maybe obscure films. Was there anything like that where they said, you know, they wanted you to keep it more known or anything like that? A little bit. There was, there was a discussion about Oscar Levant very early on where I had an Oscar Levant joke and they came to me and they said, you got to take the Oscar Levant joke out. No, but nobody, nobody knows who Oscar Levant is. I said, I'm telling you there's, there's, there's one kid who goes to the movies everywhere in, in Iowa, who knows who Oscar Levant is. I'm, I'm telling you they're out there. And by the way, there's a Justin Timberlake reference for you on the next page. So it, there was one conversation and then they gave up. They figured, ah, we'll, we'll get her next time. And there just was no next time. 
What was sort of the biggest difference between Gilmore and Miss Maisel in terms of like Miss Maisel? There's there, you don't have to do 22 episodes a season. It's a little bit different. What was the biggest difference for you in like outlining the whole show as an arc? Well, yeah, it was it was really to start it, it, to 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 really tighten up the ideas. I mean, we were so used to like basically using any good idea, any idea that we thought was good for something like Gilmore Girls, because we have 22 episodes to tell these stories. Um, and it really does truncate down. We would prefer more episodes, quite frankly. We would prefer 10, 12. No, we, think, we think eight episodes um, is not enough. Yeah, it's... I think, it's, I think uh, the audience is also, I think, miss having a little bit more time with characters. Yeah, and I think, I think Gilmore Girls still plays to this day now because people can sit with it for a long time. It's 150-something episodes. So they, there's, there's a lot to sink your teeth into. Um, it's sort of like... A show like that, running that many years, it's, it's like painting the Golden Gate Bridge. By the time you get to the end of it, you can you, you start painting the bridge again because that part of the bridge is already run down. Well, you can just start people just start watching Gilmore Girls on a loop. We've talked to many, many, many over the years to do that. Um, now, twenty-two episodes. I don't. I don't even. I can't fathom. Yeah, how we, did we also that. don't remember it how was, we did it. It was it's such a blur, and it was. I mean, it was so hard. This, this, it's so many hours and it's so much work. I, I, I don't know how we did it, but um, it, it, it's at first it seems like eight episodes feels like oh my god you've got so much time and so many days and that is wonderful. I mean you couldn't pull off a show like Maisel in that twenty-two episode model. It, it's Maisel was just two. It's a period show. It you know there's hours of makeup and hair and placing vintage cars that break down and will stall in the middle of the street. And there's just like, there's so much that goes into pulling off something like Maisel that I don't think we could have done 22, but 10, 12 would have been nice. So we dropped a, a few breadcrumbs. You talked about your dad being a comedian as well. You guys were both in the business, but what was the original idea for Miss Maisel? It was, it was, I was writing about my dad, my, because I, I grew up, my father was a comic and he, all I heard were stories of Greenwich Village, basket houses, working at the, working the Catskills, uh, going on tour, playing Vegas. You know, that, that was my upbringing. Those were my childhood stories. So I, uh, I always kind of wanted to sort of dip my toe into like the late fifties, right when comedy was starting to shift a little bit from just take my wife, please to, Lenny Bruce coming in and 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 people starting to talk about, you know, relationships and politics and uh, religion and and men and women and, and their roles in society. And it was starting to shift a little bit more in that direction. I just but 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 in thinking about that time, it just felt like as much as I love my dad and, and I'm sure he would look would have looked delightful in a skirt. I I thought putting a woman in that position was just a little bit more dramatically interesting because it was uh it was such an uphill battle for a woman then who was forget being in stand-up was not supposed to have a job she was she was she was supposed to get up in the morning and look pretty for her husband and have some kids and have sherry and start getting drunk at four o'clock in the afternoon you see like the same kind of idea in terms of like the way we talked about their their banter is better than real life as as like her 
going up on stage the first time and being naturally funny. I mean, she did bomb and she is in a writer's room later, but is, is it because it's a TV show? We kind of miss, we overlook some of the things where like, maybe she's, you know, grinding it out with the writing part, or is it just, she's naturally funny. How do you think about those things? Well, we, we did some grinding out as much as you can dramatize it. You know, the, right. you know, we, we did want to show like we did a very, especially in the first, uh, first season, the, the evolution of a joke of how you've got to like hump a joke and hump a joke over and over and over. You know, you never you rarely walk out on stage and like that joke works the first time. You've got to hone it and feel it. And there's a lot of intricate work that goes into stand up comedy. Um but we were also doing a character. We created a character. You know, Midge was somebody who the first thing that pops into her mind is the thing that she's going to talk about. And it was it was both her her. It's why she succeeded in the end, because she was an original and 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 there was no one like her. And it's why she also got herself into trouble, because by not thinking through her thought or censoring, you know, or, or, or really polishing it before she walked on, on stage all the time, you know, she got fired from Shy Baldwin's tour. It can, it can, that sort of power can backfire on you as well as, 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 you know, be, be the thing that makes you break through. So it was, we were hinging it on, on this sort of, this woman who was a very confident character who was sort of naturally on stage all the time, even if she was in a deli, and 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 suddenly th through her life falling apart on one hand discovering an ambition and and a way to to sort of channel that energy that she had into something that actually made her life infinitely more interesting was that sort of the north star that like her her you know weakness is her superpower is that how you kind of is that something you had from the beginning yeah, a hundred percent. We we were we were always saying like she, Midge was going to be a character who, it doesn't matter how much like she thought about like okay that tight ten I got it I'm going to go on I'm going to do it here I'm going to do it here right before she goes on stage someone's going to say something to her or piss her off or do something and that's all she's going to be able to have in her brain when she walks onto stage onto the stage and that's the thing that's going to take over and it's either going to be great or it's going to bomb. And that is sort of, you know, kind of how she, her whole career was kind of like flying by the seat of her pants and, and, and her discovering when she's really just sort of true to herself and true to her voice, good, bad, or indifferent, that's the way her career had to go. What was different about this show in terms of research and how did you go about some of the research to make it as accurate as, as possible in addition to your dad's stories? Uh, we, 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 we dove a lot into like Lenny Bruce's story. Um, th this one, you know, quite frankly, the show business world, again, you know, Amy's dad, he, he was my father-in-law and we, we had grown up, she had grown up listening to these stories. I certainly heard a lot of these stories. And I think over time, we've each read a lot of books. I mean, we know the village. We live in New York city. We used to live in the village. We know that we know the village. I've always read a lot about the history of New York city. I've always been fascinated by the Dylan era and the basket house era and all that stuff. So there wasn't, there wasn't a, a lot of research. There was always a, there was always a problem with like, did they say things like "No way, Jose" back in 1959? Yeah, uh, there was a lot of that. There was like there was a lot of that. We we had a researcher on hand who was basically full time that we sent out 
our more arcane questions so that she could do a deep dive at the library or on New York Times time machine just to see what people would say. Would, would they say douchebag? You know, it's like, yeah. it's there were a lot of funny, like, when did they start saying cocksucker? You know, yeah. like, well, <laughs> when, we know when it went out of style. When did it come into style? It was a lot of that, like, because you would weirdly like profanity, a lot of profane words came into existence a lot sooner than I would have thought it, mm. it I would have thought it felt very modern, but yeah, there are phrases that we use that, that, that were like, Oh, I know that happened in the fifties and it didn't, they it could didn't only trace it back to 1975. And, and we also each head of the department, like, you know, they were so conscious of like the part of the, part of the gift that we got uh, handed to us in, in Maisel were all of the amazing people that we corralled Um to work with us because they all cared as much as we did. So hair, makeup, wardrobe, um, the production design, props, uh, you know, our cinematographers, you know, everybody was so steeped in, in they wanted their history right, right. They wanted the clothes to be right. They wanted the shoes to be right. They wanted those, the styles to be right. You know, the colors that came in, you know, in the fifties and, and what was popular, you know, uh, in terms of just signage and, and things like that. Everybody really kept an eye on their own, uh, on their own work. So there was a lot of time, and there were a lot of times when they would come to us and they would say, you know, you, you discussed this and it, that wasn't really in existence for two years. And we're like, you know, we're not doing a documentary. It was like a lot of times it was the two of us going, it's okay, it's okay, it's, it's funny, it's gonna be fine. But everybody cared so much and they were so like, did so much work on their own that it, it made our lives, we could just simply ask when people started saying motherfucker. It feels like uh, so. I heard when the Cohen brothers did Inside Lewin Davis, they said they couldn't have done it without Oscar Isaac. He had to have all these chops. It feels the same for like Rachel Brosnahan. Was, was this? Did you? How did you find her? How did she get involved initially? Well, you know, we were we were looking, looking, looking. We we reached out to one comedian who passed. It was a daunting role, and I and we had several really, really, really great actresses coming out for the role, but it was, it was really daunting. It was a very daunting audition process. We were not sure if we had the person when our Los Angeles based uh, casting director, Jeannie Bacharach said, I'm going to suggest a name. And I got to tell you beforehand, this actress has zero comedy experience on film and tv zero like she had never done a role that had a laugh that, in it that ever. Had ever and she was a very experienced actress she, it's rachel brosnahan now we knew who she was because we watched house of cards and we were like oh rachel brosnahan you know the girl who like had played a very dark character that eventually got murdered i think on yeah. house of cards in a ditch. and i think our feeling was you know, because we said, will she audition? Because we knew she had been nominated for an Emmy and, and Jeannie said, absolutely, she'll audition. And my 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 feeling was like, wow, that's a lot of confidence to like go out for a part as a stand-up comedian. Yeah, and you've, you've never, never even And you don't have any yeah. any comedy experience whatsoever. It's like, that right there was like, let's see, let's see what she's got. Absolutely bring her in. And she walked in the door and... That was kind of it. The the, the and then it was kind of it. She yeah. walks in with a natural, 
confidence. Like she's not trying, you know, she's really not trying to be confident. She's just sort of like, she prepares. We, we, we got to know her preparation uh, yeah, she's very process prepared. afterwards. So we know that she came in very prepared and she did it and we gave her notes and she took those notes and uh, she just, she just won the role the old fashioned way. We could see her in the role. We were very nervous when we took, took her to Amazon or, or, or played them the tape because in the old days, I guarantee you, a network, yeah. one of the big four networks. They would have said, this would, girl's got no comedy. They would never have let a person who has no comedy experience play, be the star of a show like this. So we were very used to that world. So we got on a, we got on a call. We sent them actually yeah, two other- All sorts of strategy. Yeah, we sent them two other actresses that we didn't like as much, but we knew that like, we're going to say it's Rachel. We're going to push for Rachel. And and we got on this call already with these speeches. And we said, so you know, what did you guys- you know, they said, so what do you guys think? And we said, well, we really like Rachel Brosnahan. And they cut off, cut us off and said, yeah, we love her too. Great. It was like that. It was like, there was, it was such a clear choice yeah. that there was, there was no discussion about it. So it was a very short phone call. And she was, she, she, she was, uh, became one of the greatest for us to work with of all time. Hmm. She, she went up there with Sutton Foster and Lauren Graham, which yeah. is, a, which is the, our, the, the holy, my that's holy, our holy trinity. <laughs> Uh, we're almost out of time. I don't want to go into the plot too much, but did you always plan to kind of, you know, go into the future with her, like show her a little bit older and some of those things in the final season? No, we actually, we we knew we, that we knew we were going to end with her sitting on our version of Johnny Carson's couch. That we knew that was in the, the when, when I pitched it initially, that was in the pitch, but you know, we had attempted to do a flash forward in a, in a previous season and it just didn't work for whatever reason. And we pulled it out, but we always thought, boy, it's such an interesting idea. We'd love to like revisit something like that. And once we found out that the season five was the last season and we, so, so we're thinking about, okay, so this is, this is the journey now season five. We gotta, we gotta stick the landing. We gotta bring it home. <laughs> we, we wanted to think of all the things that people would could walk away either disappointed or feel like they hadn't really uh the journey was was a little short or you know so we we thought about well maybe this is a good time for us to like dip our toes into the future to because we all because we're going to end it on Johnny Carson's couch so everyone knows she's going to be a star like she is a star but like then what happens past that being able to selectively uh, show her moments, Susie's moments, especially because, quite frankly, they were the love story of of Maisel. Mm -hmm. um, it seemed like that is a that's a that's a fun way for us to give our our audience an extra little bump in in these last episodes. If you have time, we'll just do uh, one more. Um, any advice for novice screenwriters trying to break break in today about writing irresistible characters? Anything you can pass along? I, I mean, for, I think for both of us, I think, I think what you discover as you get older and more experienced is that everything you've seen, like movies and TV shows that have, that have been really, really good, sort of like you, you, you they, they, if, if they sort of enter your bloodstream and they become really valuable, it's why, it's why as directors, like, I, I, I would just recommend that people, 
watch as much as they can. Um, we're not cinephiles. Like we couldn't name the uh, DP on this movie and the and the gaffer on that movie. But we we love movies. We see movies every weekend. We love good TV. We watch TV when we're when we have time to do it. And I would say that's really valuable. And also reading novels and going to museums and just getting your head out of exactly what we do, but but expanding it in a creative way has is extremely valuable. I also think that when you get into the screenwriting process, because you're dealing with so many people who are all going to throw their two cents in, I think it's really important for you to keep reminding yourself why you fell in love with this in the first place, why you loved this character, why you loved this story, because there's going to be a lot of people throwing ideas and notes, and it's all going to kind of get uh, a little fuzzy at times and watery. And you have to be able to go back to that feeling and zero in on what it was that made you want to do this in the first place. Because the minute that you lose sight of that and you just start flailing around to just give people what they want, you're you're, you're going to wreck your own project. You're, you're, you just, you got to be afraid not to be, you can't be afraid to be fired is, is the bottom line because you're going to be fired at some point and something's not going to get on the air that you love at some point, or it's not going to get filmed at some point, but that can't be what stops you from seeing your vision through because at the end of the day, if something is a success or if something is a failure, they're not going to remember that it was a success or a failure because you took their note or you didn't take their note. They're just going to know it's a success or a failure. So if you didn't see it through the way you thought and it fails, that that's, that's the biggest failure in the world. Thanks so much for tuning into the show. Before you take off, I want to give you a free gift. I'm giving you my first book, Ink by the Barrel, for free. That's the digital download and audiobook at brockswinson.com. Inside this book, you'll learn how to annihilate writer's block by embracing Elizabeth Gilbert's playful trickster mentality. You can learn to weaponize your anxiety with Kevin Kelly's different is better approach and learn how to defend your time with Ryan Holiday's calendar anorexia mindset. There's just a few other ideas in the book, Ink by the Barrel. It's also based on over 400 interviews I've done right here on Creative Principles. So go steal that book right now, Ink by the Barrel, to learn how to be a prolific writer. You can get your copy that's digital download and audiobook at brockswinson.com, B-R-O-C-K-S-W-I-N-S-O-N.com. If it's your first time here, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Make sure to hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode.